Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. is a date that most people have etched in their memory banks. Most people over the age of 30 could probably tell you precisely where they were and what they were doing on the day that they heard the news that terrorists had flown two passenger jets into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City, causing them to collapse. Not to mention the other things that occurred that day. November 22nd, 1963. That's another such date. Anyone over the age of 55 could pinpoint their exact location on the day that President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. June 6th, 1944 is one which may stir the hearts of some of our older folks, D-Day. A defining moment in World War II where Allied forces landed in the enemy-held coast of Normandy. Each of us can likely recall certain events or intense moments in life which have become eternally inscribed in our hearts, can't we? Times in which it seemed that all of our senses were tremendously heightened, causing us to remember even the most minute details of what was occurring all around us. We can remember what we saw and what we heard and what we touched tasted, and even at times the smell of the room that we were in. Two most important dates in the history of my life are epic for me. December 24th, 1982, date I was ushered into the family of God, my new birthday. July 9th, 1977, the day that Denise and I were married. What dates come to your mind May 18th, 1980, it's also one of those dates for a man named John Mutchler from Washington State. Many people in the Northwest can remember where they were and what they were doing when Mount St. Helens erupted. As a freshman at Western Washington University, he recalls standing outside the Performing Arts Center looking south toward the sky, eerie and red, ablaze with the sun's reflection on tons of airborne volcanic ash. The explosion, like a nuclear blast, was heard as far away as 600 miles. 57 people lost their lives in that tragic event. But can you imagine being right next to it? Because many were. A number of people, says Mutchler, were rescued within a few miles of the mountain. Amazing, but true. But what was even more amazing than that rescue was the testimony that each one of these people gave concerning the earth-shattering blast that people could hear for 600 miles away. They never heard it. They couldn't hear it. Some, a mile or two away, thought that the darkened sky from the explosion was just cloud cover and rain. Now, that's impossible, you might be saying. How can that be? They were in what scientists call a zone of silence. The technical explanation is that the incredible upward thrust of the exploding mountain also sent sound of the event upward into the atmosphere where it bounced back to Earth several times, but in intervals outward and away from ground zero. Although people were standing right in the volcano's shadow, they didn't know of the eruption 
unless they were looking directly at the mountain at that moment when it occurred. Crazy. Listen for a moment to the precise words of Jesus as he spoke to a multitude of people who were in the midst of an erupting spiritual event that would rock the world many centuries later, yet who were at that time completely oblivious to it. Matthew chapter 13, in verse 10, we begin reading, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, Matthew chapter 13, if it tells us anything, proves that it was possible for people to stand right in front of Jesus and not hear his words, not see the truth. To not understand the urgency and the immensity of the event which was unfolding right before their very eyes. And the same exact thing is true today. What you will encounter on the streets, around your table, at your offices, at the gym, up and down the corridors of your school, and throughout the marketplace as you attempt to bring people the gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing short of amazing. It is possible, indeed it is possible probable for people to completely miss what you're trying to say, completely not hear the gospel that is being communicated right in front of them. The saddest part of it is that just as it was in Jesus' day, some of those who are closest in proximity to it, the so-called religious leaders, are not only oblivious to it, but have become vigorously opposed to it. Some years ago, my wife and I were privileged enough to listen as Joe Stoll, then president of Moody Bible Institute, shocked us with the unthinkable. He shared that the Southern Baptist Convention announced plans back then to send special evangelistic teams to Chicago and concerned that many denominations were abandoning the great cities in favor of suburban ministry. The SBC hoped to assist local churches in Chicago to organize evangelistic ministries to reach the inner city for Christ. Some of Chicago's religious leaders responded with outrage and indignation. A group of liberal Protestants and Roman Catholics calling itself the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago even asked the Southern Baptists not to come. In their words, quote, while we are confident that your volunteers would come with entirely peaceful intentions... A campaign of the nature and scope you envision would contribute to a climate conducive to hate crimes. Quote, unquote. Hate crimes? The background to this encounter is a deepening hostility to authentic gospel witness. These days, it is considered intolerant and unloving to tell someone that without Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity in hell. 
to claim that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world is to preach intolerance and imperialism. Again, quoting the words of the prophet Isaiah, Jesus describes the reality of his day in Matthew 13. I'm going to read this to you out of the message so you can get a little bit more of a flavor of it. Your ears are open, but you don't hear a thing. Your eyes are awake, but you don't see a thing. The people are blockheads. They stick their fingers in their ears so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look, so they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. That's an incredible paraphrase of that, isn't it? Friends, the stark reality is that you and I are facing a world that while more technologically advanced than Jesus' world, is as spiritually dysfunctional and derailed as it has ever been. American society today, I believe, is as spiritually blind to the truth of authentic Christianity as it was in the first century Palestine. And when the desire of the church to evangelize a crime-ridden city is looked upon by religious leaders as the seedbed for hate rather than the soil for healing, the heart of those people have become dull. Their ears deaf and their eyes blind. Don't let it happen to you. One of the greatest acts of love a Christian can extend to any non-Christian is still to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. It is good news. Don't be discouraged. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen once more to his encouraging words to his true followers in the midst of a messed up world. Again, in Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17, out of the message. But you have God-blessed eyes, eyes that see, and God-blessed ears, ears that hear. A lot of people, prophets and humble believers among them, would have given anything to see what you are seeing, to hear what you are hearing, but never had the chance. See, even though as believers, we face a critical time of testing as we have if we attempt to become contagious in our faith, we cannot keep it in. It's too good to be kept from anyone. We must make it known. Our hearts must beat with Peter and John, who before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, and commanded not to speak or teach in Jesus' name anymore. They said these words, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Have you seen? Have you heard? Then you must tell. But how? That's the question. If my guess is correct, most of you are nervous about starting spiritual conversations. Well, you're in good company. So am I. And you might think that sounds strange coming from a pastor, but it's the truth. I get a little sweaty every time I try to move the conversation I'm having with somebody towards spiritual things with an unbeliever. It's probably a good thing to be humbled by the immensity of the task, right? But it's a bad thing when that nervousness stops us from ever approaching the subject with someone. All of us have excuses, but my purpose today is to hopefully move us from making excuses to actively sharing Jesus. 
As I've mentioned over the last few weeks in this series, building relationships with people is one of the keys to reaching others with the gospel of Christ, whether it involves deepening relationships with the people we already know, reviving relationships with people we used to know, or building friendships with people we'd like to know. We must realize that at some point in time, we will likely have the opportunity to move the conversation into an area of spiritual matters. This opportunity may come moments into the relationship, or maybe it might not come until months later. But the question that I have for us all this morning is, what will you do when it actually happens? People will not figure out the gospel message on their own. They need you, and they need me to make it clear to them. And I think I made that pretty clear last week in Romans chapter 10, where it says faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Or through John chapter 4. Now, we can study a text like John chapter 4, the woman at the well, and it gives us great insight into the way that Jesus Lend someone into a spiritual conversation. I would, I would highly encourage to meditate on that passage of Scripture. And many people, including myself, have preached a detailed analysis of that method. But that's just one isolated incident with a specific set of circumstances. So rather than an intense theological analysis, what I'd like to give you this morning is a few brief and simple principles to keep in mind which are necessary for beginning and continuing spiritual conversations with those we seek to introduce to Jesus Christ, okay? That's our purpose this morning. Sometimes the deepest spiritual truths and the most effective methods are the result of simplicity, not complexity. Agreed? Let me do for an instance comparison for you, okay? The number of pages in the United States Constitution, which is the considered the kind of the operating manual for the nation of 258 or so million people. You know how many pages there are in the U.S. Constitution? 21. Now compare that to the number of pages in the operating manual of a 2019 Toyota RAV4, <laughs> which seats only five people, 728. So I'm going to try to make and uh, take the advice of one of one pastor's wife who would sit in the back of the church and blow kisses to her husband when he preached and the kiss was to remind him to keep it simple stupid. <laughs> so this is where we are today simple is usually clear, right? Not complex. And when understanding the gospel is at stake, clarity is critical. Clarity is critical. The power of our presentation really rests on the clarity of our communication of that message. So I want to draw four simple principles from the words of Paul who was tireless in his attempts to communicate the gospel in clearer, more confident and loving terms to those around him. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 4. Strange, strange kind of text for this topic, but nevertheless, it fits the bill. Colossians chapter 4 and beginning in verse 2. Paul writes, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ 
for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. And let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Great passage of Scripture. And very relevant and pertinent to the issue at hand. If you want to have more opportunities for sharing the gospel and more confidence to take more opportunities, then the first thing that we need to do is exactly what Paul says here. We need to assume an attitude of prayer. Attitude of prayer. I had to tell you with the shoulder-to-shoulder thing that's going on, one of the things that impresses me most is the amount and the attitude of prayer that is being fostered in this right from the get-go as the very first step in the process. People, I cannot stress this enough. We're commissioned to be on the front lines, aren't we? Yes? Yes? People on the front lines of any effort recognize that it's tough going on the front lines. It is. So, pray hard. There's no substitute for consistent and continual prayer. John Bunyan said it this way. He says, you can do more than pray once you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Paul recognized that prayer is the power behind an effectual presentation of the gospel message. How do you assume an attitude of prayer? Well, Paul puts it in very simple terms. Let me just outline it for you here out of this text. Number one, stay Awake, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Okay, stay awake. In other words, stay alert. We ought to begin with our own hearts here, right? It all starts with the circle drawn around us, doesn't it? We need to honestly answer the question Do I have the heart? Do I have the heart? Because if if we don't, that needs to be the first order of business, doesn't it? Pray, pray, and pray some more. Ask God to give you a passion for the souls that you interact with every day. Pray that you and I will have a heart that Christ has for people. Because, friends, before we do anything else, we need to have that. If we don't have a heart for people like Christ has a heart for people, anything we do is really kind of worthless, isn't it? More on that later. But bring every aspect of your relationship with others into the prayer picture. At the beginning of this series, I passed out some sheets to you, okay? One of them was a, was a hope list that I had you write the names of people down that I asked you to pray about on a daily basis. And on the back side of that sheet, there were instructions on praying for the people on that list and how you should do that. If you have that sheet at home, if you have it in your Bibles, Make sure you review it. But how do we pray for people? Ask God to pull them toward himself. Open their eyes to the emptiness in their life without him. Help them to see their need of forgiveness. To remove the confusion that they have about him and the life he offers. To help them grasp the meaning and the importance of the cross. Open a person's heart to God's love and truth. These are all ways that you can pray for these people. And you may say, well, that's that's pretty straightforward. I don't need to know that. Yes, we do need to know that. Pray for yourself. Ask God to help you live a consistent and attractive Christian life. 
in front of them. Make you authentic and honest as you deal with life's ups and downs. Ask God to give you wisdom in knowing how to approach the relationship. Expand our knowledge so that we will be ready to define and to defend the gospel when we have the opportunity. Pray that God would grant us the appropriate boldness and courage in the time that we need it and to use us to help lead his people to Christ, right? This person, his person that he's already chosen, but he's using you to lead to Christ. And then corporately, it's good to pray for the body of believers, all of us, to cause depth and trust to grow in the relationships, to open doors for spiritual conversations for our church and to guide those conversations in pace and frequency and opportunity. All those things we can pray for. And the truth is, is that we can become very forgetful and lose our intensity if we're not careful. One of the things I I used to employ to help keep me alert in praying for the people on my hope list is that simple thing I used to call 111. Some of you that have been here for many years have heard me speak on it on occasion. It's an adaptation of something that the Korean church did for quite a while. And, um, but every day I would set my clock, I'd set my watch for one o'clock and I would pray for one person for at least one minute at one o'clock when my watch went off. Now, for years, I had my watch alarm set for that. So no matter where I was, when that beeping went off, I was reminded to stop and pray. And I did that for many years. In fact, it happened on at least one occasion, or more occasions, that my watch went off in the car and everybody quieted down because they knew it was time to pray. My youngest son asked, so dad, who are you praying for this time? It became a conversation starter with friends when we were out to lunch and they heard my watch go up. And what was really especially cool was when the person I was with happened to be the subject that I was praying for. (laughs) And that happened on more than one occasion. And you know what? It works. It worked. Setting my watch at one o'clock for that beep worked. For years and years and years, it worked until it didn't. After many years went by and my hearing went by, Everyone heard the alarm but me. And now everybody's phone and watch is going off for every notification known to man these days. Kind of lost its uniqueness, you know. We all have to find these kind of hooks and things that we do to remind us to to pray. You may think, oh, big deal, one minute. How much of a difference can that make? Well, first of all, you need to know that prayer is not necessarily measured by time but by intensity. That's number one. Number two, it led to consistency every day. Since I haven't adopted a replacement hook for the watch-driven 111, I noticed that my consistency has definitely waned to my utmost shame. I need to find another way to revive that practice. Actually, I set my alarm on my phone just last week to do that again. Now it goes off nice and loud, and I can hear it, and everybody in the building hears it as well. But it started me back on this routine again of praying for one person at one o'clock for one minute. Faithfulness in the small things, you know, helps you to become faithful in much. You know what else I learned to staying alert in prayer that way does? No matter how small it may seem, makes a huge difference in people's lives. 
And some of them have been and still are seated around this church, in this room or the other room. And you know what that fosters? Gratitude. Gratitude. Oh, by the way, another thing that it helped me do is it fostered more prayer because you never really stop at the one minute and you never really stop at the one person. But it fosters gratitude. And so that's the second thing that Paul says here in Colossians chapter 2. Be thankful. See, keep alerting it with an attitude of what? Thanksgiving. Be thankful for the fact that someone prayed for you and their prayers were heard. We can be thankful no matter what the scenario because it leads to an opportunity to share Christ if we're observant enough. Paul was in prison when he wrote this for crying out loud. How much opportunity did he have to share Christ in prison? Well, it turns out plenty. Notice what he didn't ask for here. He didn't ask them to pray for his release from prison but that he may get another opportunity to share the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 3. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. In prison, he's praying for an opportunity to share Christ. We're entirely too self-focused in our prayers, aren't we? Very self-focused. Paul simply did not think of himself, but rather how many different ways that he could get the message of Christ out to others. Philippians chapter 1 is a good example of this. Verse 12, Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some to be sure preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. It didn't matter to Paul as long as the word of the gospel was getting out. So, stay awake, be thankful, enlist others. That's verses 3 and 4 of Colossians 4. And I just read verse 3. Verse 4 says that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. That's what he's asking for. He's saying, let's team up, pray for me. We can all use the help. That's why every Sunday in this service goes on, we usually have somebody or a couple of people in the back room praying during the service that God would, would take the word that's being proclaimed and use it powerfully for him. Among other things, they pray the same things that Paul prayed for here when he was in prison, and we all need to pray for these things if we are to effectively share Christ. Pray that you could speak clearly. Pray that we may speak boldly. Pray that we may speak graciously and that we may speak wisely. Prayer must be a priority for everyone who wants to become a contagious Christian. So assume an attitude of prayer. Secondly, adopt an evangelistic mindset. Verse 5, Colossians 4. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Can I say something right here at the outset? 
If you're not convinced in here, I'm pointing to my heart. If you're not convinced in your heart that the good news of Christ is really good news, not just good advice, but good news, then you are not going to be motivated to take any action at all with the gospel. Because you're going to think it's just one more opinion among the many opinions out in the world today. Don't buy into that baloney. Because the gospel is good news. It is good advice. There's no question about it. But it's good news. The gospel is not just good news to the people far from God, but it should be good news for us as well. Amen? One man put it this way, you must start with the heartfelt assurance that not only is your life better now than it was before you knew God, but the lives of others will be better too, even through the tough times. If you don't believe that, then you're not going to share the gospel. Looking at and hearing from some Christians... I think you have to wonder. And we all go through these stages like that. But many years ago, my wife and I spent a few days at Willow Creek Community Church where the Becoming a Contagious Christian curriculum and courses and books originated. And in that conference, I heard a tremendous talk that graphically illustrated the image of a person who owns and models a truly evangelistic mindset. One that is Christ-like and contagious. And I want to share a few highlights of that talk with you. Adapted it, of course, to our own situation, but because I think it really gets at the heart of who Paul was and what he must have looked like to people. So often, the image of an evangelist is that. <laughs> right? For a lot of people in the world, that's what they think of when you say the term evangelist. Friends, we need to annihilate the negative image and paint the world a different portrait. And so I'm going to give you a few images to kind of hang your hat on. Number one, the image of being loved. The image of being loved. Evangelism is too often motivated by things other than love, like guilt or fear or shame or success, which may be powerful for short bursts, but are utterly unsustainable for the long haul. Evangelism must be motivated by love, right? You need to learn to see people in a new way, the way that your heavenly father sees them. Our a priori responsibility is to love first, which then motivates and fuels us to evangelize. What does John 3.16 say? Say it again. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It begins with love. People are not stupid. They figure out quickly whether you're in this for love or you're in this for something else, whatever that may be. Evangelism gets a bad rap because we, you know what we do? We hit and run. Hit and run. Jesus was in it for the long haul, and so was Paul. Are we? Our responsibility is to put ourselves under the fountain and flow of the love of God on a daily basis in order for it to flow out of us into others. So there's the image of love, being loved. Secondly, the image of us being fully alive. 
Hey, like it or not, people are watching the sincerity of your love and the joy of our life as we evangelize them and are always evaluating. And you know what they're evaluating? They're evaluating whether if they become a Christian, are they trading up or trading down? Right? You've heard that before. Because our life speaks to them. And the big question that looms before us is, does our life represent to people something that they would even want? Here's another way to look at it. Would you want to invite someone who is having a great time in the world into your caliber of life in Christ? Friends, life in Christ should be the most exhilarating, stretching, joy-filled, edge-of-your-seat, sometimes scary, often difficult, always growing, fully satisfying experience in the world. Most people want that kind of experience. No, it doesn't ignore hard times. It doesn't ignore the conflicts. It doesn't ignore all the junk we have to go through. But when it's all said and done, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Would you? They trade their pseudo-happiness for that kind of stuff in a blink. Is that what you're experiencing? If not, why not? Because it always goes back again to us, doesn't it? If that's not where we're coming from, then we need revival before we can go out and evangelize somebody else. The glory of God is a man fully alive. Third image is the image of proximity. Proximity. We need to get out and get close to those who are far from God. Another image, the image of preparedness and training. Anything worth doing is worth doing better. That's what this is about, what we're doing in this series. It's about training. This is only a portion of it here. There's got to be some hands-on stuff that goes on. And lastly, the image of endurance and perseverance. On Saturday, June 3rd, 2017, rock climber Alex Hunold became the first person to scale the iconic nearly 3,000-foot granite wall known as El Capitan in Yosemite National Park without using ropes or other safety gear. Completing what may be the greatest feat of pure rock climbing in the history of the sport. He ascended the peak in three hours and 56 minutes. All alone. And they documented it on film. And you can watch that film called Free Solo. An amazing feat. And he had an obsessive training, persevering in training period. For 10 years, he trained perfecting the climb, more than 60 practice climbs. His obsessive training routine included long hours of sessions every other day, hanging by his fingertips and doing one and two, two arm pull-ups in a specially made apparatus that he bolted to the, into the doorway of his van. He also spent hours perfecting and rehearsing and memorizing exact sequences of hand and foot placements for every single pitch. He is an inveterate note taker, logging his workouts and evaluating his performance on every climb in a detailed journal. Do we do that kind of thing with evangelism? Do we train? Do we persevere? Do we take good notes? Mental notes. 
Do we try to perfect what the Holy Spirit is trying to draw out of us? We can only do it through his power. I'm not saying that we can do it on our own. Don't don't misunderstand me. And do we stick with it as long as it takes? Don't put a time limit on evangelism. Don't put a time limit on evangelism. Stick with it. Rejoice at every spiritual increment along the way of the cross. Somebody shared with me this morning during the worship time that his father has a friend that he'd been witnessing to for a long time, 20-year alcoholic. Long story short, brought him, invited him, brought him to the Franklin Graham crusade, and he got saved that night. I, right? You got to stick with this stuff because, you know, it's just not always going to happen overnight. And it may not happen in your lifetime. You may have to die for it to happen. Are you willing to do that? The other day, one of our members shared a prayer email. I had a customer who came into the bank all the time, drove me kind of batty. And one day in my flesh, I was feeling annoyed by him. The Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. His soul matters to me, and I want it to matter to you. So I started praying for him and his salvation every time I saw him and included him in my prayers outside of work. I was no longer annoyed by him. I began to see him as God saw him. This guy was passionate about music. He would bring in CDs and invite us to his shows. And he loved his daughter. And about a month later, I discovered he had cancer. And for nine months, I prayed for this man. And I tried to share the gospel with him, but he seemed to brush it off. But while he was in hospice, I went to visit him with the permission of my manager, and I prayed over him. And that, that night, I learned through some friends of his that he had accepted Christ and was baptized while he was in the hospital three months earlier. And I know that God placed many people in this man's life to point him to Jesus. I just happened to be one of those people who played a very small part. And then she writes, God is giving us an opportunity to be an influence for the kingdom of God in the lives of people we will serve and those that will witness our service. This is so much bigger than us. These souls matter to God and they matter to us. Our prayers matter. That's what adopting an evangelistic mindset's all about. Filters everything in life through the lens of communicating Christ to the community. It's the image of a sower carrying a bag of seeds, sowing it wherever they are, wherever they go. Eventually, it's going to hit some good soil, right? You don't know when, you don't know where, but Ecclesiastes 11.6 says, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. And while that's not necessarily in a verse on evangelism, the application is apparent, isn't it? Colossians 4, 5 says, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Building bridges to people requires that we assume an attitude of prayer, adopt an evangelistic mindset, and thirdly, address the need for personal preparation. Now, I'm going to streamline these last couple points here because I don't want to keep you here all day. Are you prepared to tell people the story of how you came to know Christ? Have you ever written your story out and kind of gone over it in your mind, kind of fine-tuning the words so that you're prepared to give it in a moment's notice. It's good practice. 
Sometimes you might not have two hours on a plane to sit down and talk to people about your testimony. Could you give your testimony in three minutes? Next time we're together, we're going to look at how to do that. Every person who is a committed follower of Christ ought to be prepared. If we're going to maximize our spiritual impact on others, we've got to talk about our faith in everyday words, right? Everyday words. Can you? You know how to present the gospel message in a simple, easy-to-understand way? A couple of weeks, I'm going to show you how to do that, too. But I want you to be prepared. Jesus wants us to be ready. But there's another area, just one that I want to point out, that we ought to be prepared as well. And that's taking the initiative to guide the conversation with seekers towards spiritual things. Are you making a concentrated effort to do that? There's so much online people that have written about this. Some people are phenomenal at this. Take note. Most of us, however, get pretty nervous about it. And like I said, I do too. Starting spiritual conversations is not hard. It's a matter of preparation and taking a risk. It's knowing how to blend your personality, your individual style of evangelism and dependence upon God and a keen interest in the other person's need. When all those things come together, bang, it's, it, it flows. And you know, people just take three basic approaches to this kind of thing. Number one, there's the direct approach. And that's just what it says. It doesn't wait for an opportunity to come up. It makes an opportunity. Some examples of that direct approach. By no means exhaustive, but hey, I'm curious. Do you ever think about spiritual things? Simple question. In your opinion, who do you think Jesus Christ was? Where are you on your spiritual journey? Ever wonder what happens when we die? I guarantee you everybody's wondering that. What's your spiritual background? How did you grow up? Did you grow up in a religious family? If you'd ever like to know the difference between Christianity and religion, let me know. I'd love to have that discussion with you over coffee. I just did this the other day. And it was because I was focused on this message. Just repeating this kind of stuff over and over to each other helps us to keep it in mind when when you have these opportunities presented for you. Don't let the simplicity of these statements cause you to roll your eyes and discount their impact. You'd be amazed what doors they can open in the right situation. Then there's the indirect approach. This method builds on the direction of the conversation that it's already going in, uses the topics that are being discussed as a segue into a spiritual topic. This approach uses everyday subjects like nature and hobbies and music and sport and business and marriage and family and the common struggles in life that we all share by recognizing the spiritual side of these things. But you need to consciously make the effort to process all of these things spiritually. And not just be lazy about letting your thoughts run amok like the rest of the world. I'm not talking about contrived, cornball, forced conversation. I'm talking about an honest, truthful, and tactful introduction on how our perspective in life has changed since we've come to know Christ. Because he permeates all of life, doesn't he? You know, a little creativity is all it takes to talk about life in a way that creates a spiritual thirst or curiosity in people, for instance. You know, it's only a short step from the beauty of a sunset to the God who created it for our enjoyment, isn't it? Very small step. Music. Wow, talk about a powerful inroad into the spiritual lives of people. 
Music has always been a great topic to start with. Listen to the music out there, the lyrics, the things that people are saying. Every generation, including this one, is asking all the hard questions to which the only possible answer is the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. And then there's the invitational approach, and that one you know about, right? You just focus on the other person's interest, and if an open door comes, invite them to something. Christianity that's contagious, folks, takes guts. The way I see it, we've got two options. We can play it safe by sticking with the familiar and abort the adventure before it even starts. Or we can brave the risky, uncharted territory which has countless spiritual possibilities. Which do you want to choose? You want to be contagious? It's going to mean assuming an attitude of prayer, adopting an evangelistic mindset, addressing our need for preparation, and finally and most importantly, it means availing ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Availing ourselves to the Holy Spirit. You know... Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. See, even Paul was nervous about it. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and Power. That's it, right there. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. If you argue, if you attempt to argue somebody into the kingdom and they just happen to accept it, that's not going to stick. This is not just a reasonable argument. This is the power of the Holy Spirit changing someone's heart and soul. So our proclamation of the gospel must include an absolute dependence on God, the Holy Spirit. It doesn't even seem like it needs to be mentioned, does it? But you know what most of us do? We tend to treat the Holy Spirit like a set of training wheels on a bicycle. Let me explain that. And with this, I'll close. Because the first time we try these concepts, we're so nervous about it that we depend on the guidance of the Spirit like a kid on a new bike. But then after a few successful rides, we get a little confident in our ability to steer this thing on our own, balance this thing out on our own. And you know what we do? Pop the training wheels off, right? We lose the training wheels. My dear friends, evangelism is not like learning how to ride a bike. When have you ever heard that? Everybody always says, it's like learning how to ride a bike. You never forget. It's not like learning how to ride a bike. We never lose the training wheels. We cannot lose our sense of dependence, absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis brought it all down to ground zero when he wrote these words. One must take comfort in remembering that God used a donkey to convert the prophet. Perhaps if we do our poor best, we shall be allowed a stall near it in the celestial stable. (laughs) And with that, let's pray. Father, thank you for corralling us into your stable. We rejoice in the fact that your word has gone forth by the power of your spirit. Help us, Lord God, to take these things that we've heard today and apply them in the way that you desire. Again, 
Awaken us, Lord, to what you want to do for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. And in his name I pray, amen.